and uh, you know, I'm gonna head down there. Um, okay. I hear uh, I was told that there was a big basketball game tonight, um, and so, and then, is that is that not right? Oh, okay. It was a golf like something big in Arizona. Golf. There's a golf match in Arizona. Is that what it is? Tennis. Okay. Um, anyway, I know some people enjoy watching <laughs> football, uh, and um, and there's a big game tonight. But you know the Eagles are just gonna fly away with the W. So. We're going to have to, oh, that, that was not even in my notes. That just kind of came out. It's like a, it's a dad joke. Um, <laughs> I'm going to talk at a, a really fast pace tonight. If you listen to podcasts, you speed it up to like one point. I like to speed it up to 1.5. I can listen to a 40-minute podcast in like 30 minutes. It's really great. It's awesome. Um, so I'm going to talk fast tonight. But uh, I actually did have a buddy who, who um, once traveled to the Super Bowl. Uh, how many of you guys love to travel? You love traveling? A few people. How many of you hate traveling? You're like, I would not, I don't like traveling. This is like split decision here. Some people are like, I don't mind it. It's not, it's not bad. Um, I think whether you love it or whether you hate it or whether you're, you're like in the middle, I think we could all agree that traveling isn't restful. Like it's, it's tiring, Right. Um, and, and so, uh, if you've ever traveled long distance around the, around the world, on the other side of the world, any place where you, you've had to take a car to get to an airport, to a plane, to fly somewhere for hours, and then you, you had to take a taxi or a truck or a van or maybe a boat or a canoe and, and, and walk to your final destination. And then your, your host was like, Hey, make, make yourself at home, you know, rest. And you're like, thanks. I want to rest. But this is not my home. I can't, I can't really rest here. Even if you say, make yourself at home, you know, if they're the best host in the world, it's still not the same because it's not your house. It's not your home. You can't find true rest there. And, and it, we know that because, I don't know about you, I, I just feel like there's nothing like home. You know, there's nothing like resting, being with those you love at your house, being comfortable. And for most people, if we're honest, um, vacation itself is not even restful, right? A lot of people schedule to do things on vacation. They do things, um, and, and they're, it's, it's a, a, vacation is kind of like a break from your routine, uh, from the things that you normally do, but then you're doing other things, and you're getting tired even on vacation, and you're not even resting on vacation. It's a kind of like a physical escape, maybe, from your, your responsibilities or what you normally do. Um, but you might get a little bit of rest, but it's not true rest, right? You might get some physical rest. And God created us for physical rest, right? We need physical rest. It's a great reminder that we're not God. But we, as much as we need physical rest every day, right, you got to sleep, we need spiritual rest more. So we were created for physical rest and spiritual rest, and we desperately need both of them. Uh, and no matter who you talk to, we all crave rest, whether you're a believer in Jesus or an unbeliever, whoever you talk to in the world, you could talk to them and you could connect on this. You've experienced restlessness. You've, everybody's experienced restlessness. You've experienced it physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. You've, all, you've experienced it. Everybody's experienced it. We're all restless apart from Christ. And St. Augustine said, very famous quote, probably a lot of people in the room know it. 
You have made us for yourself, O Lord. You've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until we find rest in you, right? Until we find rest in you. Because we were created, our hearts were created by God, for God, and we're going to be restless until we find rest in him. And so the major theme of the passage tonight, you could have guessed, is rest, right? We're going to be looking at just the first 13 verses of Hebrews chapter 4. So you're going to turn your Bibles there. Um, the outline of the text is, uh, it, this really could be three sermons, um, but we're going we're gonna to break it up into, here's the outline. Verses 1 through 5 is going to be the promise of rest. Verses 6 through 11 is going to be striving to enter that rest. And verses 12 through 13 is going to be the reason why. We should heed the warning that we're going to hear in the passage tonight. So let's pray, and then we're going to read our text together. Father, we do praise you for the opportunity that you've given us to come gather in this place to exalt the name of Jesus, to worship you through song, to worship you through uh, corporate prayer, to worship you through the reading of your word and the proclamation of your gospel. And Lord, I know that there are plenty of hearts and minds that are restless in the room tonight. And, and, and I know this because I've been there, and we all know, Lord, that there's so many things in this world that we tend to run to, to find fullness and peace and satisfaction and wholeness and rest. When we were created to find rest in you and you alone. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take your word and that you would convict and sanctify tonight your people and advance your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hebrews chapter four, starting in verse one. This is God's word. It says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. So I'm super grateful um, for how Rob preached uh, the message last Sunday. He laid the foundation for this passage, um, and, and he recounted the Exodus generation's rebellion and how God used Moses to lead them out of slavery. And um, I'm going to just quote Rob because I can't say it any better. This is my favorite line from last week. You ready? Jesus leads a greater Exodus out of slavery to sin and fear of death and Satan to a promised land of eternal rest. A promised land of eternal rest. And that's the goal. Right, that, that's the goal here, is a promised land of eternal rest. The goal is not geographical for the Israelites or for us. The goal is not physical land. It's not a real estate goal, okay? It's not a promise of some special land that's going to give you rest, right? This is eternal rest, God's rest, resting in Christ. So as I already stated, the major theme is rest, but you could really take this whole chunk of scripture from chapter 3 verse 7 all the way to 4:13 that whole thing is about entering God's rest or failing to do so 
All right, and, and so it, when it says in verse 1, therefore, he's, he's helping us to remember the disobedience of the Israelites who did not enter the promised land because of their unbelief. The preacher says, therefore, for those who hear this word of the Lord today, the promise of entering his rest still stands, but we should fear. That's what it says. We should fear. And in the Greek, that literally says, let us be afraid. Let us be afraid because the gospel, or as verse 2 says, the good news came to them. Why should we be afraid of the good news? Well, the good news of the gospel of God's promised vision came to the Israelites through Joshua and Caleb. And they said, the land's good. It's rich. It's lush. It's bountiful. God's provided. Let's go get it. But the Israelites rejected it. Why? Because they didn't believe. They didn't have faith in God's word. They did not trust God's word. And because of their unbelief and their disobedience, they didn't enter God's rest. As verse 2 says, they were not united by faith. With who? With Joshua and Caleb. Because Joshua and Caleb heard God's word, they listened and they believed, they trusted the Lord, and they desired to obey God's word. Therefore, they did not benefit from the good news. The Israelites that did not listen, but Joshua and Caleb did, right? They were united together, right? And we know that the Christian life is not a marathon, right? It's not an individual race, okay? Like, we're supposed to do this together. It's more of a team. We're a unit. We're the body of Christ, right? We're running together. We're encouraging one another. We're helping each other out. That's why in verse 13 in chapter 3, it said, exhort one another every day. Otherwise, we can be deceived by sin, encourage one another, exhort one another, challenge one another, remind each other, convict one another. The Christian life is no solo pursuit, right? Um, if, if you've ever heard or seen, you've ever heard of like Spartan races uh, or Tough Mudders, you ever heard of those things? They're like mud, mud races, okay? A lot of people don't do those by themselves. You're kind of like a sucker for punishment if you do it by yourself, right? The Tough Mudder is a race that is over half a, a marathon long, um, but nobody does it by themselves. They're, they're running through the mud. You're swimming through ice. You have to go over obstacles for 15 miles, okay? Some of these are so difficult, you cannot do them by yourself. You have to have help. You do it with a team, right? But you need assistance to complete the race, or you've got to have assistance, right? You need vocal assistance and you need physical assistance to complete the race, to finish, uh, to cross the finish line. And when you cross the finish line, then you get to rest, right? And, and, and so that's what we want to have in mind here. We need to heed that this is the Christian life together. We're working together. We're striving together. We're encouraging one another. We're challenging one another. We're calling each other out vocally, physically. We're doing this together. And so we should heed the warning in verse 2. It's possible. It is possible to hear the good news of the gospel and not listen and obey. You can give mental acknowledgement to the gospel, but still not be saved because you haven't rested your faith in the message spoken through God's word and worked out through God's son. Now, many people have heard the word of God. They've heard the warnings of God, and they've chosen to ignore them and do their own thing, and they're going to face the consequences of their choices. But the promise still stands today Listen to the urgency of the passage to respond in faith. In the Old Testament, people were saved by resting their faith on God's promises. The same is true for us today. Salvation is by grace through faith in God's promises. So are you resting on the provision and promises of Christ? Are you resting your faith on the provision and promises of Christ? We, because as believers, we hang everything 
on the promises of God found in his word by faith. In verses three through five, he continues on. He, he quotes again. Remember last week he quoted uh, in the Psalms, he's, he's quoting Psalm 95. And he also references Genesis 2. Right? He says, they shall not enter my rest. And this is God's rest. God provided rest. God's promised rest. And he then mentions God's creation work. His works were finished. The seventh day, God rested from all of his works. So this is God's creation work, which was finished. And that's why he rested. God rested. God instituted rest. God established rest. He set the precedent for rest. Did he have to rest? No. He didn't need to rest, right? He's not like us. God's rest is, is unique, right? He, he's not, he's not um, his rest isn't questioned. It's not threatened, right? It, it's, one of those, it's one of those things where we need to remember his absolute rule and control. He's never worried. He's never anxious, Right? He, 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 he doesn't need rest like we do because he doesn't get tired because he's God. He doesn't get out of breath. He doesn't like wipe the sweat off his brow when he's done creating the cosmos. Right? It, it didn't, he wasn't sweating. He's God. Right? Work doesn't tire him out like it does us. He rested to give us an example and to set a precedent for the rest of our lives as his creation. And that's why in the Ten Commandments, we have the fourth commandment, to Sabbath, to rest, to stop. And that commandment was fulfilled and radicalized in and by Jesus. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He did, he did that for all of the commandments, not just for one, right? He, and so he, let me give you a couple of examples of how Jesus fulfilled and radicalized the Ten Commandments. For example, um, it says don't murder, right? Uh, but Jesus said, if you look at someone with uh, anger or hate in your heart, then you are guilty of murder. Anybody guilty? Yeah. Okay. Only one person's honest in here. Awesome. Um, my wife has recently been telling me that um, my face doesn't communicate what my words do. So, like, you know, so like, and, I, and, I, and I'm really bad at it, but um, I need to tell my face what I'm feeling um, because my words don't align with my face, you know? Um, have you ever known anybody who has that stare where you're like, if looks could kill, right? You ever known somebody like that? Or maybe you have that? Watch out. Stepping on some toes. If looks could kill, that's where we get this from. Jesus radicalized also, don't commit adultery. Don't sleep with somebody else's spouse. He said, if you look at someone with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. You're guilty of adultery. How, how many people have done that? You're guilty, just as if you were done the physical act, right? That he radicalized that commandment. So what about the, what about the Sabbath? Did it just disappear? Like how, how did Jesus radicalize the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath? In his book, Christ Above All, the author says this, this Sabbath rest is related to the eternal rest of God himself. The fourth commandment has been radicalized like all the others in that the one day of rest per week has been turned into a permanent rest. The rest from work has also been radicalized by turning it into rest from disobedience, from sin. So keeping the Sabbath for us today means to rest permanently from our sin, to serve God wholeheartedly all throughout the week and all throughout our lives. So it's no longer about a single day 
anymore. It's about an all-encompassing, worshipful rest in Christ and what he's done and what he said. Right? What did he say? It's finished. The work is finished. What did he say? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me, all who are heavy laden. Cast your cares on me. Right? Come to me. I'll give you rest. This is what Jesus says. I'll give you rest for your souls. Again, in verse 5, he says, they shall not enter my rest. For Israel, it was rest from sojourning. Right? They've been walking around in the desert. Rest from pilgrimage. Rest from traveling. Rest from temporary setting up and temporary taking down of tents. Rest from hostility and insecurity and instability because life in the desert was not restful. Now for the church today, followers of Jesus, it's rest in Christ now. It's rest in Christ, which is a, an already but not yet reality for us, okay? So, so we rest right now, but, but we're still looking forward to a future rest to come. We're looking forward because right now we're sojourners in a weary land and we're not at the finish line yet, right? One day we will be rid of these physical bodies, these temporary tents, and we will put down eternal roots in God's promised land where we have eternal rest. I loved uh, the Blue Letter Bible's definition of rest. It's, a, it's finding uh, a resting place, the heavenly blessedness in which God dwells and of which he has promised to make persevering believers in Christ partakers after the toils and trials of life on earth are ended. It's eternal rest in God himself. Now let's focus on our second paragraph here in verses 6 through 10 or 6 through 11. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So listen to the urgency of these verses. It remains today. Today you can enter God's rest, like right now. Like there's an urgency that we should have when we're talking with people, eternal souls, about the gospel today, right? Like you're not trying to, to, to weasel somebody in or, or make them make a decision before they leave, but they need to feel the urgency, right? This is, a, this is a serious matter. What's he talking about entering? He's talking about entering God's rest, is the good news that, that Jesus offers forgiveness, peace, hope, and rest for all, for everyone who doesn't deserve it. Who's that? Everybody, right? That, that's, that's the mercy of God is offered today for those who don't deserve it and how we need it. But today is the day of salvation. The time is right now. Right? There, there's nothing like right now. So listen to the Holy Spirit applying his living word to dead hearts. Listen to this, verse 8 through 10. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. A certain day, another day. Uh, in verses 7 and 8, this is referring to Jesus' day. Today, Right? In verse 9 it says, this remains a Sabbath rest. That's, that's a change in, in phrasing, in, in wording. That's the only time in the New Testament that you will find that used. Sabbath rest. The preacher is reminding the people that Joshua didn't give the Israelites rest when he led them into the promised land. He's saying Jesus is better than Joshua. 
Because only Jesus can offer true spiritual rest. Only Jesus can provide eternal rest, Sabbath rest, right now, right? Every day, rest in Christ and future rest with Christ. I mean, that's really good. That is a game changer. Rest, I mean, how many people do you know that need rest now? They need rest today, but they also need hope for the future. They need hope for future rest. You can have rest now and you can have rest in the future. This is the gospel. There's no better rest. There's no rest like resting in Jesus. And this isn't like resting like after you just got done pushing, uh, push mowing the lawn, right? This is, this is true rest. This is, this is stop your, your working. Stop trying to grasp and reaching out for control. Stop being anxious. Stop being worried. Rest in his finished work, spiritual rest for your soul. And when we rest, when we enter God's rest in Christ, when we fully lean and trust in Jesus, everything changes. Everything changes. One commentator said this, the Sabbath rest of God is the archetype of all rest because it speaks of the completion of work and deep satisfaction with it. Now verse 11 closes this second paragraph out with a call to action for all who have ears to hear. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So this is not striving as in you can earn your salvation or if you're a good enough person then, or if you do good enough things, then you can earn rest. That's not what this is about. Right? When we are striving, we're using the resources Christ already purchased for us so that we can continue on as pilgrims through this life and use all of his resources, all of the grace, all of the means of grace that he's given us. When it says inner, it's referring to keeping the faith, persevering in the faith. So how do we strive to enter? How do we strive to enter the rest that God's already provided for us in Christ? Well, we need to remember the promises he's given us, right? Celebrate the victory right now that we have and look forward to eternal rest. So for the believer, that's past, present, and future. That has past, present, and future implications for us. So remember the promises of God, celebrate the victory of Jesus, and look forward to eternal rest in and with God. Strive, strive with the habits of grace God's provided for us, those spiritual disciplines that the Lord has given to us, right? Of paramount importance to all spiritual discipline is the word of God. It's the most important thing. You can't neglect the word of God. Now, I don't know about you, but my entire life, I've heard Hebrews 4, 12 quoted, just ripped out of context. I couldn't have told you, a lot of you could probably quote it right now, but you can't, until tonight, have understood what's going, around, what's going on in the context of Hebrews 4, 12. Because it, it's a great verse, right? We could preach an entire sermon just on Hebrews 4, 12. And talk about how the word of God is alive. It's living. It's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. Right? It's incredible. There's no book like it. It pierces your soul. Right? There's no other book that can do that. Like it pierces your soul and your spirit down to the joints and the marrow. And it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. Right? It exposes us. It lays us bare. It convicts us. It encourages us. It, uh, it leads us. It guides us. We could preach a whole sermon on this verse. 
how it starts, the word of God. That word is logos. Here, Hebrews 4.12. Look at it, the word. So some have said, is he talking about Jesus or is he talking about the scriptures? And I went on a big rabbit trail over the past couple of weeks studying this. And I found Matthew Henry, super old guy, dead guy, said, he made it very clear. I mean, I thought it was very helpful. He said this, by the word of God, we may understand either the essential or the written word. So the essential word is Jesus. The essential word in the beginning was with God and was God. Remember John 1, 1, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Indeed, what is said in this verse, Hebrews 4, 12, is true concerning him. It is true. But most importantly, he's pointing to the written word, the Holy Scriptures, which are the word of God. So yes, Jesus is alive and active. And yes, he can discern your thoughts. Yes, he can. He does know your intentions. He can see your heart. And yes, Revelation 1.16 says that Jesus is going to come back riding on a white horse, right, with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, right? And that the word of God is a sword of the Spirit. But we know that Jesus is not the Bible, and the Bible is not Jesus, right? We don't worship the Bible. We worship Jesus because the Bible reveals Jesus to us. He, it informs us about Jesus. It leads us to Jesus. It points us to Jesus. It exalts Jesus. Also found what Al Mohler said, super helpful. Regrettably, many Christians divorce the Bible from Jesus. Maybe you've heard somebody say this. I don't need theology. I don't need the Bible, right? I just need Jesus. Just give me Jesus. This is a misguided assessment. Christ cannot be divorced from Scripture. Our knowledge of Jesus as the divine Son of God and his accomplishments for us only come through Scripture. We cannot have Jesus Christ apart from the witness of the Bible. The two are inseparably married. So given the context of Hebrews 4 and the consistent reminder of the Israelites failing to heed God's word, the preacher is reminding the people of the character of the word of God and how piercing it is. It's more piercing than a physical sword. Now, they knew way more about physical swords than we do today. Uh, probably a lot of people don't have a physical sword in your house. You probably have more guns than swords in your house, right? But back in the day, they knew all about swords, and so they understood quickly when he said this about the word of God, that it's a double-edged sword. And I found this quote absolutely shocking when I was studying this passage. This is from William Lane. He said this in his commentary, and I quote, he draws attention, this is the preacher of the Hebrews, to the experience of Israel at Kadesh when he describes God's word as sharper than any double-edged sword. God had said to the Israelites, you shall not enter the land. But the people, in essence, said to Moses in Numbers 14, we have made a tragic mistake. Let's take up our weapons and enter the land. We are now prepared to believe God. But Moses warned them not to go. Entrance into the land now would be an act of presumption inviting defeat. You will fall by the sword of the Amalekites and the Canaanites. But they disregarded his warning and entered the high hill country, unaccompanied by Moses or the Ark of the Covenant. There they fell by the double-edged sword of the Amalekites and the Canaanites. Wow. Right? Like, how important is it to not rip one verse out of context? Like, you got to read Scripture in its context because this 
it makes Hebrews 4.12 way richer when you understand the context and what it would have meant to the original audience when you're remembering that, that there's, a, there's a massive importance between listening to the words of God, the voice of God, and obeying them, right? This is, this is incredible. It's a sobering reminder for us today that we don't deal with the Amalekites or the Canaanites and physical swords. We're dealing with God himself, the voice of God. And we should not fear the physical sword like we should the living sword. The physical sword can only kill the body. The, 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 the living sword, the word of God, judges, it convicts, and it tells us the truth about ourselves. And that same word of God is a scalpel that God uses to slice open your soul and lay you bare and vulnerable before him. And it's the same word that he uses to sanctify you and to make you more like his son. That's why Jesus prayed in John 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. The sword of God's word is a tool. It's a tool for judgment and it's a tool for sanctification. And for the believer, it's a tool for satisfaction. What a unique tool. It's a tool for judgment, sanctification, and satisfaction. When God speaks, the Bible speaks. When the Bible speaks, God speaks because it's alive, because God's alive. When we are convicted by the word of God, we're confronted by God himself. And that's what calls us to repent and to believe. We would do well to read the Bible daily, to heed God's word daily, to listen today to God's word. Because it's not just relevant, it's essential. Every day, it's critical. Every day, it's authoritative. Every single day, just as it was for the original audience, it's authoritative for us today because the Bible is timeless. And it's, it's living precisely because the word of God is living because he's an eternal God and he's alive. And so heed the warning. Don't miss the warning. In 12 and 13, no creature is hidden from his sight. This includes everything and everyone. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Verses 12 and 13 are reasons that we should strive to enter the rest. They're warning us. They're a sober reminder for us of who we are dealing with when it comes to life, when it comes to death. We're dealing with God himself. As Rob said last week, allow the warning to pierce you. It should be uncomfortable. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. The words naked and exposed in verse 13 call to mind our vulnerability before God. That word exposed in the Greek is a wrestling term that invokes images of, and I was going to get Zach to come up here and demonstrate this, but the rear, rear naked choke, I feel like it would be too distracting. Probably. Um, and I would pass out. But uh, Zach can do it to his kids. It's great. Um, and and it, when you get somebody in a rear naked choke, okay, they are 100% vulnerable. When, they can't tap out and call somebody else to come help them. Right? They're, they're 100% vulnerable. So what he's trying to say here is you are 100% vulnerable before God. Everything is laid bare before him. You are helpless. When somebody's in a rear naked choke, they're helpless. They have to tap out, like, stop it or I'm going to die, right? We need to remember that we are creatures, and God is the creator. 
So when we try to cover up, when we try to hide, it doesn't work. I know we don't want to be exposed. We don't want to be caught, but we need to fear the Lord and remember his consistent presence. Remember, read verse 13 in fear and trembling. God's always there. He always sees. He always knows. We can't hide from him, right? We can't hide our actions. We can't hide our thoughts. He sees your heart. He sees your mind. He knows what goes through your mind before you even say it. He knows what you're not going to say. He knows what doesn't come through the filter that you have, right? Like through his word, through his son, through his spirit, he pierces deeper than anything or anyone else in this world could. We can't hide from him. We can't hide any unspoken word. We can't hide any motive. We can't hide any intention. He knows our hearts. He knows that every human heart apart from Christ, every human heart is evil, unbelieving. Every human heart apart from Christ is prone to rebellion. Every heart. But how much sweeter does that make the truth of God's sovereign love. How much sweeter is it to say he sees me, he knows me, he knows me better than anybody else in the world, and yet he still loves me? He still sent Jesus to save me? That's amazing. That's sovereign love. He knows. He knows me, and he still loves me. He sees me, and he still loves me. He knows that I need rest. He knows what I need more than I know what I need, more than anybody else knows what I need. He knows that when I look for it in all the wrong places, I'm always going to end up restless. That's why we need to strive to enter rest in Christ. Al Muller said this, only one thing can satisfy the restlessness of the human soul, and that's the rest of God. And the only way we can access God's rest is by faith in Jesus Christ the one who secures God's rest for believers through his death and resurrection. We celebrate Jesus on Sunday because of the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us today. Romans 4.25 says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the resurrection of Jesus proves God accepting Jesus' atonement for our sins. Friday's work on the cross depends on Sunday's victory of the empty tomb. And that's why we celebrate on Sunday, because he rose from the grave and offers us eternal rest. So submit to Christ and find rest for your souls, or abandon Christ, and you'll have eternal restlessness. This is the word of God to obstinate unbelievers. Listen to the word of God. Don't be stubborn in your unbelief. Turn away from a deaf ear to God's voice today. It's, it's very possible to listen and obey. It's critical that we listen to the voice of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If one fails to listen to God's word, then we'll ultimately disobey. We'll never find rest. But listening and obeying leads to rest in God's promises. Just as the Israelites' disobedience led to a hardened heart because of their unbelief, today, it seems like many have a predetermined disposition towards stubbornness when it comes to the word of God. They refuse to listen to God's word, which leads to unbelief, which leads to disobedience, which leads to ultimate restlessness. So we need to be aware 
to not become like the Israelites. We are given them as an example. Learn. Like, learn from their mistakes. To, to, to not hear God's word. To not hear the good news and then not pursue it. Let's be united by faith with one another and listen to the words of God and obey the words of God together. You can hear the gospel and not be saved because you didn't trust in God's work. You didn't submit to God's way and actively strive to hold fast to Jesus and obey his teachings. One commentator said that the antidote to unbelief, indecision, and disobedience is exposure to the judgment of God's living word. A living word is incompatible with stagnation in the life of the Christian. Man, that's good. A living word is incompatible with stagnation in the life of the Christian. May we let the Holy Spirit apply Christ's word to our soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. Let the Bible be moving water over your soul every single day. Be drenched in it. Be soaked in it. Swim in it. And then you'll find rest. How do, how do we find, how does someone enter God's rest? That's a massive question coming out of this passage. How does someone enter God's rest? It's very simple. Trust the Lord Jesus. Trust the Lord Jesus. Rely on his word. Lean only on him. Rest in God's grace. Unbelief will keep you restless. Trust Jesus. Rest in God's grace. Enjoy the forgiveness and the peace that only he can provide. Rest in a relationship with God. Full, satisfying, complete, whole, shalom. Strive to be a student of the word of God. Let the Bible study you as you study the Bible. Scripture alone can lead you to Christ-likeness. That's the goal for everybody for the church, for his bride, to be pure, spotless, beautiful, presented to him, right? Central to our faith is God's written word and his incarnate word, the essential word, Jesus. So rest your faith in his word every single day of the week as we serve him wholeheartedly every day, not just on Sunday, every day of the week. Let's rest in God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for knowing us, seeing us, and still loving us. We praise you for revealing yourself to us through your creation, through your word spoken, through your word incarnate, your son, and through your word written. We need you. We need your word. We are restless apart from you. Lord, I, I pray that we would not try to find rest in any means of this world, in any self-help books, in any counsel that's void of your word. Lord, I pray that we would find rest in you, that we would not ignore the good news, that we would hear it, that we would heed it, that we would apply it, that we would strive to enter, and not by ourselves, that we would be running together, encouraging one another, challenging one another, applying the scriptures to our lives, listening and obeying your word, and in doing so, we would find rest for our souls. I pray that we would just come to you, Jesus, trust in you, hear your voice, and submit to you, and we'll find rest. It's in your name we pray.